Hello, I'm Adam Conover, and welcome to Humans Who Make Games, a long-form, intimate conversation with the people who make some of your favorite video games. And this episode is our last one of the season, and it's one that I'm particularly excited for because, look, this is a personal show. This is a show where I want you to meet the folks who make your favorite games, where we want to turn them into real people for you rather than abstractions, and... I can't think of an interview that accomplishes that goal more than this one. Uh, Today on the show, we have Alex Preston. Um, He made a game a few years ago, one of my very favorite games of the last five years, called Hyperlight Drifter. Uh, Maybe you've played it. If you haven't, it's a gorgeous uh, 2D isometric kind of action-adventure game. Uh, Draws from Zelda, draws from many other games, uh, has beautiful colors, uh, beautiful sound, beautiful music, soundtrack by Disaster Piece. But most importantly, it's an extremely personal game to the creator, Alex Preston, Um, as he will tell you in this interview. He made it while struggling with, and he made it about a medical condition that he has, uh, about his own medical struggles. And I I don't want to put anything not in his words. Uh, I want you to be able to hear it from his mouth, but uh, the game is profoundly personal, and that comes through when you play it. And that's something that we do get from games a lot of the time, but rarely with this level of intensity. And uh, it's rare for me to play a game that made me want so intensely to meet the person who made it. And uh, so here I am meeting him today uh, in this interview. Uh, It's a really wonderful one. We go to some really interesting places. I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, Here's my interview with Alex Preston. If you want to wear the headphones, you're more sure. than welcome to. I like to do it because it makes me feel like I'm on a podcast. And then I'm like, yeah. Hello. And that's pretty good, right? Yeah. I've only done like a super official podcast once before. I've done a bunch of like over the phone things. or A super official podcast. I mean, we do this show over the phone sometimes when folks aren't in LA, right. but. I just mean like with a headphone set up and a yeah. booth and an engineer proper. It's better. I mean, Skype yeah. style can be is great, and you can do so many more podcasts that you can. I mean, some podcasts are done entirely that way, and they've got a rhythm right. down. But you know, in terms of like really having a conversation, I like to. I like, I like it. It feels fancy <laughs> in a nice way. <laughs> well, and also so many like. You know, the point of the show is video games get so depersonalized from the people. And so mm. it's like, I like the I like the vibe. Of I, getting, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, of course. Uh, so your name is? Alex Preston. A- Alex Preston. Thanks for being here from uh, Heart Machine, your company. That's correct. You did Hyperlight Drifter a number of years ago. That's the one. Wonderful game. I have a cop. I bought the, I love this game so much. I got the digital copy and then I bought it. The, this beautiful physical edition. It's a really lovely edition. That I am ape- I'm going to ask you to sign this after we get out of here. Is oh, that okay? Sure. This comes with a, it has a, I love that you did an instruction manual and a map and everything for yeah. it. That's why I bought it. <laughs> That's <laughs> why we made it because, you know, it's uh, a lot of childhood in there. <laughs> for, re- for real. Yeah. For real. That, like, I, I do a thing when I get these where I, like, smell the manual. Mm. Do you do that? Oh, yeah. Because the ink and the paper, something uh, about it, it is it's, like really transportive. There's like a particular 
particularly nice and yep there you go it still smells <laughs> like it yeah the, the, i mean because they haven't really changed the printing methods in, in many many years so yeah it's very similar and and it's so funny because i literally wanted that part of the experience like i mean the disc is great but sure. i was playing this last night you know to refresh myself and i didn't put the disc in i still have it on my yeah, ps4 but, digital anyway um but i also wanted the thing of feeling like i owned it like in 50 years i can yeah. buy some junky old ps4 and i at least have this disc if every server is down yeah and we're in a post <laughs> internet society I, I think it's a good idea to hold on to physical copies of games that you love yeah because you know who knows what's going to happen with digital and you already see that stuff getting pulled off of shelves or yeah. to digital shelves um, even in the 360 era where yeah. like really cool like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure fighting game from Capcom that mm-hmm. they had out there for like a year or two and then they just killed it and you can't get it anymore. Yeah. So, Or like uh, there's this like tenuous like I, you know the Wii for instance I still have my Wii and the Wii shop went down mm-hmm. or they no longer sell right. Wii games and I know there's digital games that are like on that hard drive. Yeah, you can still play them. Uh, but it, but they feel very tenuous compared to the Wii discs that I have, right? Well, like, yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's still in the memory, and maybe it'll last longer than your disc, or maybe it won't. Who I knows? mean, physical hard drives don't last that long. They have, like, rated lifespans of, True. what, like, 5, 10 years, something well, like that? Well, on the Wii, it's not a hard drive. It's a memory chip, so. Because, like, a hard oh, drive yeah. means, like, the spindle and the platter and all right. that kind of stuff. I mean, you, it's interchangeable terminology, I guess, for a lot of yeah. people, but technically, it's, like, yeah. it's just memory chips. Well, that's it's what I mean, the physical, like, like, the physical drive on your... PS4, you know. That's a hard drive, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that tactile thing of because uh Hyperlight Drifter is a game that's like very specifically trying to bring back a feeling from the SNES era, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, even more than a lot of games with, you know, uh pixel art, etc. You're sure. trying to bring back that feeling and that tactile nature of it was so was so important. It was a big part of, I mean, I, I grew up in that era, you know, 80s, 90s kid, and uh, like Dragon Quest was one of the mm-hmm. first games on the NES that I really fell in love with, like the physical packaging of. Yeah. Because it had a really amazing cover for the yeah. time for the American version. Um, and it came with a map and it came with all these different little tidbits in the manual itself. Yeah. And so I just, I have really fond memories of that. And of course, like plenty of games did that, but Dragon Quest is the first one that I really remembered as a kid having a keen attachment to, like to the point where I put it up on my wall. Like that was an amazing thing you could do with with the physical components of a video game. Like going into that digital world and then being able to have a little bit of it exists in the the real world also is, it was just, I don't know, it was really nice. Oh my God. Yeah, I used to like the various posters that came with NES games, I would put them up on the wall and... Uh, I actually specifically remember that about about Dragon Quest Dragon Warrior that um this is the first game that made me have that realization um looking back at it cuz like I was at a friend's place and he had turned I don't know if they were from the manual or from Nintendo Power but mm. the, these little bits of art combined with a spell description for every spell yeah. so you'd like see the sort of physical feature of the Dragon Warrior right. hero teleporting or healing or casting a fireball and then like a little description of what the spell did and he had like turned them into magnets, and they were on his fridge. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was, and it was like really transportive to yeah. see those. But I, I realized, oh yeah, those spells at the time, there were no, there were like no graphic effects for any of those spells. Right. It was just like maybe the screen would flash. He flashed white. a little bit, yeah. And so having that picture 
was so important in yeah. terms of making your imagination work because it was like, well, here's what you should imagine happening when you yeah. cast that spell. <laughs> well, that's yeah, and I don't know if you played a lot of like heavier, heavier, hardcore PC games or like CRPGs back in the day too, but they had even thicker, wilder manuals. Yeah, because they would like come stacked with a huge book, and a lot of it was just like you're saying, where they're trying to get you to like get more into the world and understand what the idea is the concept or like the visualization at its like pinnacle like the true fantasy of it because you know they're very limited back in the day especially pixel art and even on the pc which is more powerful you can do fmvs and whatever else but in game you're not going to get a lot of those cool effects or just like the representation you get in in tv or film and so yeah those giant manuals made a lot like of that disconnect happen where it's like yeah as you're playing it you're fantasizing because like you'd read the manual first a lot of the time so even in even in modern games that that helps like i remember playing uh the first nino kuni on mm. ps3 and it came with this big in game i didn't yeah. have the physical version but like an in game was it called wizard's companion mm-hmm. and it had that same like just a description and piece of art for every spell yeah. and even though that game has modern special effects right sure. at the time it's, it's beautiful still, art yeah. yeah it's still like brought me in what are some other uh what are some other early memories you have of that time in video games uh, Godzilla was what, like it was the it was the really <laughs> I forget what the name exactly of the NES Godzilla was, but I was obsessed with Godzilla as a kid. Um, you know, I watched Godzilla in 1984 a whole lot, um, and any other movie I can get my hands on with that creature in it. But it was the <laughs> NES game where you had this hex grid, um, and you would like make moves, and there's monsters oh, around, yeah. you know, like Godira and, and everybody else, Mothra, and then you'd go into the side-scrolling elements uh, and like go and try and just make it to the end of the level and slash and whatever else has whatever monster you were. And it was bad. It was a bad video game, but I was like, <laughs> you know, very tiny and young, so I didn't understand other than Godzilla and he's big on the screen and I can play around with this and control this. And so that was my, I think that was my first experience of, of like having a connection with, having like such a deep connection with a character that I loved and being able to translate that into interactivity, uh, even if the interactivity was god-awful. <laughs> it was still, it was like a magical thing. Yeah. And then realizing years later how bad that video game was. Like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't go back down that nostalgia trip. I think I had that as a rental. It was like a game, it was almost hard to make sense of. How yeah, to... no, especially as a kid, yeah, it's, it's not great. <laughs> you don't quite understand what the hex grid's doing. You don't, Really get what you're supposed to be doing on the side scrolling because the feedback wasn't good either. Yeah, it's missing missing a lot of um, valuable uh, uh, telegraphs, I would say. But there is this sense that you, I remember playing games like that where I I couldn't make head nor tail of it. Like like the kind of game where you know I had on NES, I per, you know, my parents spent forty dollars on it or whatever, and I never got past level one or two because mm. the game was bad or it was too advanced for me or there was some disconnect. Um, and yet, you as a kid, it was still possible to have like an important experience with it. <laughs> sure, I mean, yeah, you, you know, like I grew up grew up pretty broke, you know, mm. and so I had to. I had to smash uh, a lot of aluminum cans and mm-hmm. take them out to the recycling center and like get whatever pennies and quarters I can get from there to help save up for a long, long time. And then hope that my parents would bridge whatever gap that I had there to like yeah. buy a video game. Um, and that was much rarer, especially earlier on. Um, 
but I at least had my brother who was older by like four years uh, to be able to play things if I couldn't get through it. Mm. So like Super Mario Brothers 3 was something that I had difficulty with earlier on until I really started to understand how to play around it. But I'd watch him beat a lot of games mm. rather than me. So my experience with games earlier on were much more as an observer mm. uh, or much more as a I can't do this, help me kind of yeah. <laughs> kind of event, which was... You know, uh, it was a bonding experience and really nice in many ways. And then when I finally was old enough to understand how to, you know, actually play video games, yeah. that became less of an important thing. But early on, it was like, it's a great way to experience it is watching somebody older um, who knows what they're doing and like to still be in that world and still understand the interactivity because you're allowed to play once in a while, but knowing that uh, you have limitations yeah. as a kid. <laughs> did he did he go on to have the same connection with the games that you do now? Um, I mean, he still plays games and everything, but no, he he went off in a very different direction than mm-hmm. I did. So, where'd you guys grow up? Uh, in Ventura County, so not too far from here. Oh, okay, yeah, cool. And uh, what was I don't know at that time? Were you having that feeling of like, oh, I could I could make a game? Uh, I mean, I I definitely had a lot of ideas about what I could do creatively, like write fantasy books or make comics, mm-hmm. whatever else. You know, I was making comics since I was a kid. You know, mm-hmm. like my we had this book fair uh, in like fifth and sixth grade where everyone make a book, write something, whatever else. And I decided one year just to make a comic book because um, technically you're writing, but also you're drawing. Um, and that was the first time I like actually sat down and put together like from start to finish this thing that uh, ended up being a lot of work. Yeah. And am I allowed to curse on the show? Yeah. Okay, fuck it. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of fucking work to make that. You know, a comic book is hard to do, especially when that you're, you're, you're that young. You don't know what you're doing. And you have very limited tools. Like, it was all very analog, very manual, yeah. um, including the binding of the damn thing, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I tried to, like, rip comic books apart and understand how they made it. <laughs> and it's like, I tried to emulate that way, but also, like, I didn't have those types of pages available or that even that, like, type of stock available. So it's like, well, I guess I'll just jam this together with duct tape and <laughs> staples. Um, so it's real stupid, but also really, like, a great learning experience. Like, it was- takes a lot to create. What was that comic about? Oh gosh, it's about some like cyber ninja uh, and his <laughs> cyber, cyber ninja sidekick named Ryle. Um, can I? Can I? I hate to break it to you. Uh, uh, Hyperlight Drifter is also about a cyber ninja with is, a cyber sidekick. There's no cyber. <laughs> not a cyber ninja. <laughs> okay. Not in this way. Oh, no cybernetic okay. parts. No augments oh, like that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. General yes. cyber vibe. Yeah, there's cyber vibe. Sure. <laughs> I like the things that I like. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Been trying to make things the same way for a long time. <laughs> well, that's uh, <laughs> like uh, a good question. Like, did you? Because because you very much uh, the, uh, and I don't mean to focus too much on that one game. I know that you sure. have a lot of a lot of other wonderful work, but. Um, like, were you always trying to reproduce that Super Nintendo feeling, or is that uh, something that you came back to later as a developer? We're jumping um, ahead a little bit. But. Oh, sure. I mean, with, with Hyperlight, um, I definitely wanted to... <laughs> the idea that I w- was thinking about ultimately was just, boy, I wish um, I wish they'd make another um, second Densetsu, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Secret of Mana, because, well, they had the first one, which I didn't really like that much, and then they had the third one uh, come the, out in Japan, but, like, you could get it as a ROM. The on first one, you meant the Game Boy one? Uh, well, or, sorry. no, like, the first SNES one, Secret Got of Mana. It. Yeah. Uh, they had, like, a, I don't know, Final Fantasy and Secret of Mana had some, like, mix, whatever. I forget the exact order of things and what happened, because they relabeled yeah. some games 
in on the Game Boy. What I think it's, the like, original convoluted history was somewhat about forty percent of the audience listening is going. I know they. I, I, yeah, I'm sure they do. I've, it's an imperfect I think, memory. I think Secret of Mana. The game that came out for us for, that was Secret of Mana was Second Densetsu 2. Yeah, I, I think believe. you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. And then 3 came out in Japan only. Yeah. And that was something that I played a lot uh, in high school through emulation. Yeah. Because they had like fan translations. Yeah, I, I played a bunch of that yeah. fan translation too. That was such a... when. Wh- and, it was like 95 or 6 or something like that. It was like end of, end of life for the SNES. Yeah. But it's also amazing for a fan translation project that was like pretty good. I mean, it was certainly playable. I don't remember yeah. how good the translation was. It but was it fine. Was, it was very playable. Felt as good as any other Super Nintendo game. Right. But for that to come out in as a ROM in like probably 2001, 2002, something like that? I mean, like it, was, that? it was earlier than that for sure. Wow. Because it was, it was like uh, freshman year of high school for me that I wow. was playing that, which was before 2000. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that was like, like, I wished that somebody had like kept making that game mm. um, and had ever released it on a console in America at least. Um, and so it kind of stemmed from that and a combination of, of course, like great love for Link to the Past. And yeah wanting to make something that felt more modern but still had those constraints in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, the button set up and all that, um, and just graphically, you know, starting at that point, but then being able to push it in ways where, oh, obviously I have a stylistic take on this that I want to really right. emphasize. Like, visually, like, it would be impossible on the 16-bit era, of course. Right. Um, and with the controls in particular being unsatisfied with games back then uh, for top-down and for... Um, like hack and slash style where it's like modern games you can do a lot more or have done mm-hmm. a lot more in that realm on the 2D side than they did in the SS, SNES era. I think there's a lot of really great side scrollers. It's not that Link to the Past felt bad or anything. It was incredible at the time, but it wasn't fast paced. Like the mm-hmm. combat wasn't super in-depth. It was extremely, yeah. extraordinarily simple and worked really well because of that. And so also as a kid later on, like just playing a ton of Diablo, I'm like, can I make something that feels <laughs> as like cool and interesting and like has that really, I hate to use the stupid word because it's so dead, visceral feel in combat, but it lives in the 16-bit era. Yeah. Do you feel there's any, uh, when thinking about, Re- games that are retro, right? It's a it's a horrible loaded <laughs> word that I yeah, um, now it is. <laughs> I, I almost hate to bring up, right? But um, in terms of like, there's a is there like a sweet spot of the difference between something that feels like a retread mm. and something that feels like a genuine uh, a genuine working with like the the medium and mm. the and the past of the medium. Does that make sense? Do yeah. You- I, I mean, like, there's definitely good examples of both ends of the spectrum there that you're talking about. Like, I think Shovel Knight is a really good example mm-hmm. of something that takes a lot of ideas and definitely more so than, than Hyperlight ever did, like, worked within the constraints of the system that they're trying, like, pretending that they're being, that they're on, essentially. Yeah. It's like, that game could have been on an NES, mostly. Like, there's a few cheats here and there yeah. but they're they're minuscule in comparison so it's like as good as it's how you remember nes games yeah. being, and then you go back and play one of those like a real <laughs> nes game and you're like oh wait this is like a little jankier than i remember yeah and shovel knight does a really good job of yeah. like still again like working with like i think their goal was like let's make an snes game straight up like mm-hmm. exactly how like with the constraints that the hardware would have Again, they, they cheated a little bit here and there, but I think they got the spirit of that stuff yeah. nailed and moved it beyond just nostalgia. They moved it into a way that is still fun and relevant today and has modern design sensibilities. And, and But it's still, 
like the the design, the game design of that game is the types of challenges are the types of challenges that you would play in an NES game, like difficult platforming or... Largely, like a, yes, like but a, also wrapped up in smart, modern design. Yeah. Like, when, I, when we're talking about that, it's like, okay, they have this drop mechanic when you die, and, like, the money pops out and all that stuff. That's a much more modern idea totally. in some ways. Not to say games didn't do that stuff, but then it's, like, it's all these components mixed together to make this whole mm-hmm. that is very, very modern in its sensibilities. Yeah. And unlike a lot of games back then where, you know, like, you had continues or passcodes or like certain difficulty spikes would ruin the experience mm-hmm. or just broken up in the flow in very different ways. Like you go back and play Castlevania, which is one of the closer analogs that you got. And it's like, oh, it stylistically and just from a design framework plays very differently and is frustrating in many ways. Yeah. Whereas Shovel Knight takes it's like, oh, how do we do this for like a modern audience so that they understand what we're trying to do and they can you know, kind of bask in some of the nostalgia that maybe they didn't even have because they're a younger audience and also enjoy this video game because it just needs to play better because most games, you know, a lot of games nowadays oftentimes play with, you know, auto saves and don't have to worry about shitty old save systems um, and are a lot more fair to the player. Yeah. Uh, And that game felt like, again, it took a lot of those lessons from more modern games and like kind of made this beautiful little package or not even little anymore. That game's like... Yeah, six different games at this it, point. It also there's also a modern sensibility of like iterating on the particular mechanics that that you know. Okay, here's right. you know, Shovel Knight moves like this, Specter Knight moves like that. Right. Tra- this kind of traversal. Here's an interesting challenge. It's very and polished, then, also. Yeah, and then let's iterate, iterate. How many different variations on this sort of traversal can we come up with? You know, sure. how many different level themes? Well, and that's a brand. That's yeah. kind of a new way of thinking about exactly. old games too. Like a lot of old games didn't get that chance. Mm-hmm. Didn't even have that much uh, time to develop in the first place. Like there is a reason why Nintendo games felt so much better than most of the other games typically because mm-hmm. they had the the resources and the time and just the, their own design sensibilities in the like 80s and 90s to get it to a quality level that was hard to achieve back then or because just you know production is very ragtag all the time with games even still but like back then yeah. for sure like much more limitations but something like Shovel Knight is able to iterate to polish to take it to a level you just was almost impossible for most companies to do back then is there a contrast that you draw between the approach of Hyperlight Drifter and, and Shovel Knight um, I mean, I love Shovel Knight and those yeah. and those uh, those folks at Yacht Club, and we were in like that similar Kickstarter bubble mm-hmm. back in you know twelve, thirteen, fourteen or so. Um, and so I, you know, I have a I have a lot of respect for what they've done and been able to achieve and been able to like keep doing with that specific franchise that they built out um, in a way that like I didn't desire to like keep building in in that realm. Like you know, I'd get tired of keeping to pixel art and the constraints of that and just like the formats that they had set up for themselves but um and yeah so i have a lot of respect and reverence for what they do mm-hmm. i just love that series it's, yeah it plays really well and it, it hits those nostalgia buttons in all the right ways for a side scroller like that but there's like it, it doesn't uh i'm trying to figure out what what is it that makes it not feel like a retread right because sometimes you play a game that's mm. like hey we're trying to bring back that game you loved in the past or a feeling that you sure. had in the past and then you play it and you're like yeah, okay. I, I yeah, sure. Right. If if I wanted to just go back in time, right? Yeah. Maybe this is doing that for me, but it doesn't feel like a a full a artistic rehash. work in the way that, you know, Shovel Knight or Hyperlight Drifter right. does. Well, I, I think really again what it is, um 
is that that modern uh, those modern design changes and the polish level that makes it not feel like I just rehashed an old mm-hmm. game. And I think it's similar for Hyperlight. Like we put a lot of time and effort into stylizing in a way that wasn't really possible, but feels like it could have been in some yeah. ways on the SNES. Like it is bringing modern sensibilities, whether it's design, art, or even audio, uh, to an older format in ways that just were not possible, but feel like it could have been, or feels like the memory of what it was yeah. in your head. And so that was that was kind of the thing that I think separated Hyperlight out in a lot of ways was like, ah, I remember games like this, but you go back and play, it's like, they couldn't do these things. <laughs> well, we got to go a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Alex Preston. <laughs> Hello. It was like minutes for the audience, but for us, it was literally no Blink time. Blink of at all. an eye. Blink it's of an like eye. In, it's like Inception. You know, yeah. it, we we lived a. You all lived a whole lifetime, but we're all still here. Yeah, I um, didn't age a minute. <laughs> so, well, speaking of which, tell me, uh, just very, you know, walk us through real quick how you how you came to being a, a game developer after writing those comics and self publishing them. Sure. Um, I mean, I I always loved video games and I always thought about making them in some capacity or another like I had tried to collaborate with a number of friends and was like people that were smarter than me with programming and whatever else um, but never quite came to fruition uh, they always were busy doing other things or just fell through like for an example the first time I ever tried to make a game with friends like I had my old 46 I was trying to make a command and conquer clone back in the day mm-hmm. um, with my neighbor down the street because he had a faster PC than me and he could actually code and like we built it out in text files and everything like the level editors and all that um, we got some characters running around with some really poor pathfinding and then he <laughs> gave up <laughs> he was just like I, this is too much work I'm done I'm like fuck um, so that was my first attempt you know in like grade school yeah. trying to trying to actually I mean that's that's pretty far like me and my friends had our own attempts too and that's much further than we got that is as far as we got <laughs> that was it I mean pathfinding is like not bad yeah it was it was is incredible to watch. Yeah. To be like, we had this idea, we pushed together on it. He did a lot of the labor on the programming side yeah. to make it happen, but to see like, oh wow, you actually did this raycast to make this thing look at the different pixels and like walk around on screen. Like seeing a character come to life and walk around on screen that I had poorly animated was amazing. Yeah. Um, especially that young. And then, you know, I had other uh, series like that with uh, other friends and like acquaintances trying to build something mm-hmm. um, in different capacities to the point where it's like I tried on iOS a couple of times like oh this is small we can like make a smaller project that's more constrained just by virtue of the hardware being more limited so we didn't have to worry about it and just like the releases on iOS early on in, in the in the iPhone I don't know like 2008-ish era wow uh, or 9 um, and just try and put something on a screen then, like made a little puzzler thing that, yeah, you know, we worked together off and on after work for like six months and made something sort of interesting and then it just fell apart. And that's that was kind of the history for a while. It's like you try and try and try and then all, fail. All b- between the 486 and the iPhone, it's just you saying like at, with whatever platform you've got, <laughs> hey, let me, let's try to cobble something together with a couple friends and you're just keeping pace with the times. Well, there wasn't that many in between those. There's a couple of friends here and there, but right. ultimately, I mean, it's it was the same story a handful of times throughout yeah. the course of my career of doing a lot of different things too. Got it. 
um, like always in the back of my mind thinking we can I can do something here because I never really wanted to work for a AAA company as much as I love Nintendo and loved all these other companies that made incredible games Capcom and Squaresoft and whatever else I never wanted to work for a big mm-hmm. entity like that it's like I wanted to make my own things I had yeah. my own ideas of worlds that I wanted to create and so at some point it's like I'll be a writer or I'll be you know an illustrator or make comics or you know maybe I'll make movies I don't know or try animation you know and uh, I ended up going into fine arts for college um, instead of anything else because, like, I felt I could maintain my very nerdy, computer-centric lifestyle even doing fine arts, uh, which was true because I ended up, like, uh, uh, helping to found this uh, software development company back in high school. Uh, mm. or, sorry, back in first year of college. Mm. Um, so I was, like, 18. And this guy uh, in an apartment complex that I was living in, uh, <laughs> first year, first year of college, like first semester of college, was like, "Yeah, we want to make a logo for me." And I was like, "Sure, all right, I'll make a logo." Because of his, other, like, an assistant friend of his knew me and knew that I like did design work. And then we ended up working together for six years after that, wow. and like building this company throughout college. And I was doing full time college, and then I was doing this like moonlighting basically. Wow. And it was a whole wild experience because uh, it was something that I never thought I was going to do. But I learned a lot about how to run a company, how not to run a company. Because <laughs> that company ended up kind of crashing and burning. And I, I left at a certain point because it's like I can't, like it's not going the way that it should be going. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of opportunity here and a lot of ways that we could be pushing this to be really integral and important because it's one of the first uh, platforms to do online fundraising for political campaigns. That was uh, what the company was doing. Oh yeah, that was one of one of the many things it was trying to do, and it <laughs> did that, and it did it well back in like two thousand and I want to say like one or two. Wow. Or, or like yeah, two or something like that. We started that out, and like that was early days of that. Yeah, all, of, that like, was like Howard Dean was getting a lot of press like in yeah. that next election cycle for raising money online right. at all. Yeah, and like people had started doing it, and like we were we had something there, and like. I don't know. It just it was a lot of bad management decisions that I had no control over. <laughs> right. Um, and so I ended up leaving that a little bit after college. But you're opinionated about it. You were like, wait, this is this is a bad decision. And I think I know what a better decision. Would yeah. Be. You know, I was there since like day one, basically mm-hmm. helping to build this thing. But I wasn't old enough to be like a fancy exec or whatever. Yeah. So like I'd participate in decisions, but I just it wasn't enough of a voice. So I learned early on, like, I don't want to be in that position again. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm smarter than most of these people that are doing these things. <laughs> I know a better way to do this. Why aren't we doing this? So I was like, fuck it, I'm out. Um, but I put, like, my heart and soul into that, too. It's like, I, this could be incredible. Like, you see the opportunity there. Yeah. Even though this wasn't what I wanted to do creatively, it's like, as a business venture, like, this is doing really unique things. Um, and then after that, because it was such a, like, I don't know. And then at the same time, I was doing a lot of fine arts, painting, whatever else. So a very different lifestyle that I'm living mm-hmm. from, like, the business stuff that I'm doing. And I got really, like I said, I, I left uh, that company and then just ended up smoking weed for, like, a year because <laughs> and, like, painting for artists for a while uh, because I was exhausted. You know, it was a lot of responsibility, especially to carry over when you're that young and you're learning yeah. the ropes of business and you're just getting kind of like yanked all over the place about like what could be or what couldn't be. And I just wanted to relax for a while. And then I ended up going back into like commercial work, illustration, all that stuff. And it wasn't until uh, I got really sick because um, I've always had health problems throughout my life, like mm. congenital heart uh, disease, among many other things that my body just loves to try and kill me with. Um, mm. But at a certain point in like 2012, uh, I'd had 
like back to back the worst years of my life physically. Um, and just to the point where I was, I had to go get a G tube, which is they shove something in your guts so that you can actually eat. Um, cause I could not eat food cause my body was so reactive Wow. and I had like wasted away at about 90 pounds on the couch and I'm not a small person either. <laughs> yeah. I'm, like, I'm like six foot. So <laughs> yeah. that was not a lot of weight. It's like, it's a horrifying thing to watch yourself turn into a skeleton, uh, over wow. the course of, of months. Um, and so I had to hospitalize myself and I eventually like over the course of a year, um, regained some mass and was able to actually be somewhat functional. Like uh, a tube like that is giving you medical food. So it's not exactly something that is super long-term sustaining. Uh-huh. Uh, it'll do enough to keep you alive. It'll do enough to like give you some, some brain power and some muscle, uh, for a while, but it, it's not, not enough ultimately. Yeah. Um, and so I decided in that term, like as I kind of regained some strength, like, oh, I'm not going to do things that I want to do anymore. I don't want to do <laughs> dancing vacuum commercials and any of the other <laughs> dumb bullshit that I was doing before. Well, like, that's a famous, <laughs> that's a famous commercial. Da- the dancing vacuum. Did you do the one where Fred Astaire's dancing? With no, vacuum? I didn't. Not that one. Oh, no. okay. I'm this sorry. is a different dancing vacuum. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I'm this sorry. is the beat here. Dancing. Vacuum. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I was just like, wait, that was like the one that they like sued over. Okay. No. Uh, all right. Yeah. That's yeah. my idea. Yeah, I stole the Fred Astaire. <laughs> no, and ev- yeah, an event like that will really make you reconsider. I mean, it's a series of events, and it's just like a slow collapse. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a train wreck that you're watching for your own body for years. Wow. And it's, it's like you're living in this uh, realm of torture, torture that you just is almost impossible to get out of. But uh, you know, through a lot of, <laughs> through a lot of uh, awfulness, I eventually kind of came out on a more positive end and um you know I still wasn't good but I decided again I'd like I only want to do things that I really want to do and my like roommate and I we uh, we went to the same school together and we started like making animation together we started like making a board game and then I was also like I should just actually make a video game and if nobody else wants to make a video game with me I'm just going to do it myself <laughs> I'm tired of having these failed ventures throughout the course of my life on the games front yeah so, and then like, hey, if I need help training on this stuff, if I need help for somebody to like teach me to how, how to program for this particular like, reason game maker, um, I was like, cool, I'll do that. And I, I hooked up through a buddy with a, with Bo, uh, who ended up becoming, you know, my, my mainstay gameplay programmer for, for Hyperlight. Um, but we, we worked for, for a bunch of months, like nine months off and on, on a part-time basis where I was like paying him to do stuff to help me build this thing tried a bunch of prototypes and finally landed on the one that we ended up putting for the Kickstarter. So, Wow. And so that project was Hyperlight. Yeah. Like that I mean, first project. It was. I mean, it was a couple of other iterations before that ended up being like, eh, let's do this and let's do that. But that was, it ended up being Hyperlight. And I put together the Kickstarter with the stuff that we had made. Um, and this is all while I'm, you know, not doing so great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like struggling. I'm like, I have to do something yeah. because when you're in that kind of state of mind, like work is the only thing for me that helps me stay alive and push through. Mm. Um, and it's the same, like, it's still the same story today. You know, I have really bad days and really bad weeks and months sometimes. Mm. Um, you know, just, uh, last year in June, my health fell off a cliff and I was hospitalized for most of June. I didn't eat food for almost the entire month of June. Wow. Lost a shit ton of weight again. Yeah. Down to like 106 pounds, which was not fun. And fasting for that long, also not fun. Um, but we ended up, uh, back for the 2012-2013 era, um, yeah, I, I was able to put stuff together, and I didn't necessarily think it was going to be a, like, a huge hit. I thought, like, there's opportunity here. 
because Kickstarter at that time in 2012, 2013-ish era was uh, enough of a bubble that somebody like me, who was relatively no name, but except for like the people I'm attached to, like Disaster Piece and whatever else, mm-hmm. like if I have a good pitch, I, I had the chance of actually making something. Like people yeah. would actually give me money for that because there was still that that sense of trust for people which was later well i mean like yeah you know by virtue of a lot of other people trying to do things that maybe they weren't capable of uh failing or just under delivering like yeah. that that kind of eroded over the course of the kickstarter boom there for was games. A, there was a lot there was an attitude of like yeah why the fuck not right like here's a fun idea yeah sure here's whatever. five bucks you yeah know? i'll do it and now it's a lot more like well, why should I pre-order this? Right. Or, you know, it, or it's like even, caution. There's a lot of yeah. caution there. People got burned on Kickstarter campaigns and learned their lesson and was like, I'm good. I'll wait until it actually comes out. That looks exciting yeah. maybe, but I'm not going to actually participate and give you my money right now, which is unfortunate, but also just the reality of what happened because a lot of people abused that platform in ways that, you know, or just pushed it in ways that like maybe they shouldn't have. They should have been more prepared for that. And to be fair, like I wasn't as prepared as I could have been either just for what ended up happening with it being, you know, such a much bigger thing that I, I had expected it to be. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'll plan for this much money and then we can do it for like a year and a half maybe with just him and I and maybe two other people. But no, it became something big enough that I could hire like an actual team for it and make the game a lot bigger than I wanted, mm-hmm. than I had initially wanted to or planned completely to make it like it just it expanded our horizons in a way that was incredible so so when you're making that prototype or you're you're prototyping the game like what are your if you can go back to that time like what were your first sort of ideas and how did you you know how do you turn that first like kindling into like a playable prototype does that make sense yeah um i mean it's hard yeah <laughs> i said i think one of my one of my missions now uh, is trying to expose as many people for a general audience to how games are made. Um, because me, as a kid growing up, was always fascinated. I'm all, not even as a kid. Like in general, as a person, I am fascinated by process, mm-hmm. especially the creative process. It doesn't yeah. rem- doesn't matter what industry it is. Um, but yeah, games, same. games in particular, yeah, that's why you're having that's this podcast. Show, yeah, but like. That process is fascinating because everybody does it differently to some degree. There are there is definitely a crossover, and there are definitely ways to not reinvent the wheel each time for different yeah. different disciplines. And, and and that's kind of what the work is like. Now that I've you know done creative work and like figured mm. out the process, I'm like, well, that's kind of all it is. Like, there's the end product, sure, but for the person creating it, it's nothing but process. Right. And if you're looking at it without a sense of process uh you know whether you're in an art gallery or you're listening to a piece of music or you're playing a game mm-hmm. you're kind of missing like 90 percent of of what the work was in the first place you're missing yeah you're missing out on a lot of the beauty of yeah. creation um whether it's like you're saying a painting or a game or even a film uh there's a lot more information out there about you know movies and films and books and comics and everything because it's their industries that have been entertainment industries that have been and artistic industries that have been here for you know many generations now yeah. many decades whereas games are relatively new and games are so incredibly complicated because it encompasses all of those things mm-hmm. it is an audio experience it is non-linear storytelling which is a whole lot harder than right. linear storytelling yes there's interactivity that also shakes up all that linear storytelling in a way yeah. that's like it's so intangible and just like that those two factors alone make it 
exponentially, many, many magnitudes harder than traditional storytelling. Not that traditional storytelling or linear storytelling is easy, because that's also fucking hard. Yeah. Um, Creative process in general is hard, and I respect anybody who's good at it, or even attempts it, you know? It's, It's so... But with games, like you can think of them as modern opera. You know, opera many, many, many years ago was like the pinnacle of entertainment, and yeah. it was so complicated because, like, you have to have a symphony, you have to have singers and actors, yep. not just singers, not just actors. You have to have people that can do both. You have to have these incredible sets uh, that like move and change, and you know, it's over the course of hours that this live production is happening. And you are, if you're a director of that, like you are composing a lot of this stuff and making it come together in a way that like just was never seen in any other mediums. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, sure, you can go to a concert for an orchestra and that's one thing. You can go see actors on a stage and that's another thing. But like to combine all these incredible disciplines into something whole was, you know, is always amazing. And then games is a lot, it's like the digital version of that in a lot of ways because you're composing all these different and disparate elements and trying to make them whole and trying to make it or holistic. Trying to make them work together. Yeah, and, it, and there's, you know, like even, it's, so it's hard for me these days to talk, like I've thought about like, oh, I should talk about <laughs> game reviews more often. It's like, well, it's hard because, you know, nobody sets out to make bad games or mediocre games, but understanding the process and my hope too is that as we like, as games get older, as we get older, like more people understand why this stuff is difficult and why nobody sets out to make a mediocre or a bad game, but it just happens sometimes for a virtue of like, this is a years of labor from many multiple people. Yeah. And it is, uh, it, uh, it is a crazy person's task to orchestrate this stuff. And, and so much of the time when a bad, when a game is bad, it's because the process was bad, not the people were bad, <laughs> or that their individual work was bad. You know, it can be both, but oftentimes, yeah, yeah a lot of it has to do with process of just falling through with in many con- ways. Constraints and you know, yeah. or financial well, constraints, or yeah. your publisher says you got to release it now, or they just don't allow the time for it to yeah. gestate. And you know, really, with games in particular, as an industry, like I have a little bit of experience in some other industries, but I, I, I know like games in particular because. It's such a newer industry, mm-hmm. you know, things like uh, unions, things like just even like standardization for things are a mm-hmm. lot harder to come by in certain ways. Yeah, It's like different companies use different localization standards just to like as one thing, yeah. you know, where it's like in movies, a lot of that stuff is set or in TV, a lot of that stuff is set when it comes to like yep. how you're localizing, how you're broadcasting, just like the all equipment. the different rights, equipment, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah, our equipment is like build a PC if you want to or buy a PC or do like, yeah. you know, and what PC, who knows? What game engine are you going to use? Right. And like... it's like, oh, whatever I guess we think is best. And mm-hmm. then you kind of have to. A lot of it is about leveraging those things, those tools and the skills and the resources you have to kind of funnel into particular platforms or particular, uh, and those platforms even are, you know, like <laughs> between like a Xbox and a PlayStation and a PC, there's like a vast amount of things that need to be considered for just how you make that game run on those platforms. Yeah. Even that's not really so standardized in a lot of ways. It's getting better. To the point where, like, you know, modern consoles are a lot more like PCs, and therefore there's a lot less you have to do. But if you remember back in, and I kind of love this, uh, you know, ports between, like, SNES and Genesis, or even ports between, like, Arcade and NES, um, like, the the huge disparity on that stuff. Like, you look at... uh, like they put Mega Man games on like SNES or NES Mega Man games on the Genesis 
and they were pretty wildly different in, in, really? in ways. I didn't actually they also know put that. them on PC, and that was all an even yeah. different and more wild version of that. Yeah. But again, like they try their best to make it conform to the particulars of that original or that originating uh, content, mm-hmm. but. You know, they're working with different engines. They're working with different physics. Like those values, yeah. they don't, they can't clone that necessarily the as precisely. The level programming of it is different. Right. It's all the, the, the ones and zeros and like the very specifics <laughs> of like the physics of that engine. Yeah. Like, and not like PhysX in, in video, but like back, like there's still physics that people build manually in old games. Like how far does this pixel move if you do this? Um, and so like watching the disparity between like Genesis Street Fighter and SNES Street Fighter is incredible because you get to see what the team went through or like what their constraints were. It's like, oh, you have black borders everywhere or like you can't do this with backgrounds or they had to cut these frames or they had to scale. Like even just SNES versus arcade Street Fighter 2, it's like, oh, they had to scale these characters a certain way just because they have fewer bars of resolution for yeah. it. And it's fascinating to watch like how they made those compromises but still made it feel like the game. It's why I mean, you make me think of like even the sound cards on the on yeah the different like it's like uh, or even if you had a sound card back in the day, you know. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, the sound cards for sure, like sound blasters and whatever else. Like Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis, like sound the, oh, the yeah, sound yeah. chips were like yeah. uh, different instruments, absolutely like different synthesizers. Yeah, that had to be the the same compositions weren't possible on both because they had the di- different numbers of voices. I don't know the they the had different sound channels were. and like the yeah. capacities were very different too. Yeah. Like the sound chip in the SNES was amazing because it's built by Sony, mm-hmm. and it was like a much more robust uh, set of instructions that you could give to it. Whereas the uh, the like Master System and the Genesis, just I love the sound of it, but it was more limiting in a lot of different yeah. ways. Although it could do voice better than the SNES could, yeah, which is like a weird difference. Well, yeah, like not like either of them were good voice, but you could understand the Genesis voice yeah. better than anything <laughs> in the SNES. Well, so going back to the, I man, yeah, I'm. Every fucking thing you say is fascinating, but I want to <laughs> I want to ask you this question again. When you're when you're uh, coming up with Hyperlight Drifter, right? Sure. When you're when you're at that point, like what was your what was your first gestational idea, and then what was the exploration that you did in that prototyping? Uh, for that for that first prototype back in the day. I mean, that's that that is to me the most mysterious part of it, mm. right? Because I can imagine once you've got. Uh, once you've got the prototype and you've got, okay, this is how it's going to feel. This is the type of world I want to do. You're yeah. building, you're iterating, you're drawing art, you're play testing. Oh, was this fun? No, we got to tweak it like this. But it's that first thing of, you know, what is the action going to be? How is yeah. it going to feel? What emotion is it going to create? Sure. And how's that expressed? That to me is the most mysterious part of the creation of a video game that I'm most curious about. Well, I think a lot of games, they end up having tons of iterations for mm-hmm. different ideas. I think it's more rare to find something where like they knew what they wanted and they made it and it just worked. Yeah. And even for Hyperlight, um, I mean, I, th- I think that's the same for a lot of art. Like I'll say with paintings, like, cause I used to do a lot of large format painting. Um, occasionally this was the best feeling in the world that I could have was I'd have an idea for a painting and it would come out exactly how I was thinking mm-hmm. about it on the canvas. I was like, holy fuck, that is like, that's better than anything that I've ever felt. Cause like it just direct translation. It just came out from yep. my brain, translated in my hands and happened. And I think with games, there's like so many different variables that can happen uh, throughout the course of it. And like we're talking about game feel is one thing, like just that alone can really just take a lot of iteration. So for for Hyperlight specifically, our first prototype was actually a side scroller. um, And you had Mm. like a little dog companion that you could kind of throw out like boy on his blob to do different things. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I was calling it Black Crown at the time as like the code name or maybe potential Mm -hmm. name. 
Uh, but the character had some similarities to the actual one in, in Hyperlight uh, does, but not enough. And again, side-scrolling versus overhead. And it took a few iterations for me, like, ah, fuck it, this isn't the right path. We need to do something more overhead. I have some, like, I just did a lot of sketches. I did a lot of digital painting to be like, I think we need to do this. But it took that trial and error on the side scroller for a couple of months between Bo and I to, like, make sure that this was not the path <laughs> to then jump into <laughs> what is the path. And that actually clicked a lot faster. It's like, oh, we should do overhead. Oh, we should have this dash move. Oh, we should have, like, you know, a three hit slash, do this. You know, and like, here's an enemy that needs to move around like this. I'll draw you some like really shitty pixel art for it and whatever else. And it, that clicked really quickly. That mm. like within like the first couple of weeks is like, ah, oh, this is dope. We got it. This this is the core of the video game. This is where mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna build it around. And I wouldn't say it was easy, but it came together in a way that felt right. You know, just yeah. like kind of built on itself. Where it was a bit of a struggle previously on the on the other, um, especially side scroller stuff that just wasn't. It's like, oh yeah, this is this is the jam. Yeah. So it, and then after that, again, it's like we've been talking about. There's just so much iteration that happened. Like, oh, how far does this dash go? How many like pixels? And yeah. what is the resolution even? Like going at a higher level, pulling back even further. Right. It's like, what resolution are we actually targeting for this? Because that matters. You know, like yeah. it matters to like how many systems we can be on essentially, because PCs have to have such a broad spectrum of cap- capabilities. And you think like PCs are fast. Right, it's 2013. PCs are fast, and back then, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, but even still, it's 2020. PCs are fast, right? It's like mm, a lot of people still play on their right. you know, integrated chipset. Where yes, yeah. 2D games can be really successful because they play on everything technically, usually. Yeah. Uh, and 3D games, like you really have to target that min spec if you want the broadest possible audience. And for for this in particular, like talking about resolutions, like well, I'm like thinking of SNES resolutions. We want that. It's like eh, not quite. It's a little too small. Yep. Let me bump it up a little bit because if I just add this bit to the frame, it opens up so much more. And that's the first time thinking about um, how constrained do we want to be to old hardware. Like what is the true framework that we're building? Like the resolution uh, decision was like, no, we're not gonna like. Sp- we're not going to like lash ourselves into that framework so hardcore. We'll use it as a direction. We'll use it as a jumping off point, and we'll try and stay within that realm. So again, that it, it fills that kind of nostalgia void, but it does things beyond mm-hmm. in a way that again, you think about the game and you play the game and uh, you recognize it as from that era to some extent, but also when you go back and play stuff, it's like, you, these things are not possible. Yeah. Even just as simple as an idea of like, what is the resolution of our game can affect that in a major way. Did you have a consciousness of having to, you know, when you're doing that prototype, you're, you're, you're saying, I'm going to go on Kickstarter, right? You're, you're, mm-hmm. you're targeting that. Okay, so that means we need to get people to uh, click the button sure. <laughs> and type the number in. Mm-hmm. We need to make them want it, yeah. right? And so, therefore, you need a, a pitch to them. You need yeah. a log line of here's what you're going to get out of this experience that you want that you've been missing. Yeah. Um, were you conscious of that need, and were you designing for that at all? Of hey, here's an here's an audience. I, I imagine there's a lot of folks who feel this way, and this game is going to give them this thing that they want. Um. When I make anything, I make it for me, mm-hmm. first and foremost. Like, I am the audience. Yeah. Um, I definitely think about the audience after the fact, after I think about what I want first. 
But like building the pitch, for example, for Kickstarter, it's like I'd been doing all sorts of commercial stuff, illustration, other like uh, VFX or other heavy FX stuff on uh, fun projects that uh, never really went anywhere, uh, motion graphics stuff and all that. So it's like I knew how to build a pitch. I knew how to build a trailer. You know, I knew how to do these things. And I also knew what I liked and wanted out of these things. Um, and so, and as an artist, like more than anything, that's what I still consider myself. Like I do a lot of design and everything and paperwork and everything these mm-hmm. days, but like I'm at the end of the day at my core, I'm still an artist. And so I have an idea and a vision for what I want this to be because I feel good about it because I feel like it would, it would sell to me. Yeah. Like this would be something that I want to see. And so building that trailer for, for the Kickstarter is like, that was all I was concerned about. It's like, Mm. what is dope? What do I think is cool? (laughs) If I saw this, would I be like, fuck yeah. And like, yeah, that's, that's what you do. That's what I do at least. Um, and then of course you think about, okay, what else would get people enticed? What else, you know, as you build out the rest of that Kickstarter, cause they're like stretch goals and they're different ways to talk about and get people excited. But really like I'm anytime that I'm thinking about building that out and even, this next game and the game after that, I, I always ask myself, like, what would be cool to put in this? What would be interesting? What would, like, snag me as an audience yeah. member? Because I am my core audience, and I know there's plenty of people around that. That's not to say I ignore everybody else. It's just, like, I'm the first defender of that stuff. Yeah. And if it goes past my filter, then I can start to think about how do I expand on this idea and how do I build it for, like, a broader audience as well. Well, how do you balance... Because, look, I also, uh, when I'm doing my work, I I try to imagine myself sitting in front of the television or sitting in the audience and, like, how is this how is this hitting me, mm-hmm. right? Um, I try to simultaneously be the be the creator in the audience. But um, Hyper Light Drifter strikes me as a really personal game as yeah. well, um, where you're not just uh, making stuff that you aesthetically think is cool or creating an experience that you would like to play. Sure. Oh, geez, I wish this game existed, which is one version of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It also seems like you're trying to express something emotionally uh, that is, uh, or artistically, that is like actually personal to you. Um, and, uh, but I, I know a lot of folks who are artists in my life who that's their main goal mm-hmm. is to, that kind of expression, and that's a beautiful goal. But yeah. it doesn't always result in people enjoying the thing that they made. Oh, yeah, because it can and, be dark, it can and, be bleak, yeah. it can be. And too they often, personal. And they often don't care because right. they're saying, hey, I just wanted to express, this is a movement of my soul. This yeah. is, I just want to express myself in this way. And if five people saw it and they understand me a little bit better, I'm done. And yeah. that's a beautiful thing. It is. Um, but it's hard to bridge with also <laughs> what, yeah. what you're also doing making a video yeah. game. I mean, there's there's plenty to unpack there. I mean, like creative expression, the, the fact that it gets made is incredible. And I appreciate, again, and I respect the people that it can actually even just put something out there, even just like get started in that process and really dig through and be introspective about themselves and what affects them and their own experience. Um, and sharing that beyond that is like a huge step. And so anybody can, that can really do that, I, I have, you know, <laughs> I know the process. I know it's fucking hard. Yeah. So like good fucking job on getting yourself out there. And if that's what you need and that's all it is, like amazing. You've, you've sated that part of your creative soul. Um, for me, like you talked about the personal, like, absolutely. You know, I'm talking about, it's kind of, it's a mix of emotions and it's a mix of desires. Like on one hand, I want this to be like a dope thing that I would love to play because why the fuck not? But games for me growing up and even later in life as my health has deteriorated, which it will continue to just by virtue of what the fuck's going on. Mm. Um, 
they've provided a really incredible way to exist and live in ways that I can't physically in the real world. And so it's this virtual escape, but it's also one that like elevates and one that like calms and like enriches me. It's not just a, let me go on like some deep, long heroin trip and zonk out for a while. It's like, no, let me go feel something different that would be impossible otherwise. Yeah. Let me go like exist in a world that would be impossible otherwise right now. And so games offer this respite from a pretty hostile world usually, or just a hostile body in my case that, you know, I I don't have a whole lot of of other outlets. And so with Hyperlight and just like making that decision of, I don't want to do anything that I don't want to do anymore because why the fuck would I? I'm dying. I'm out. (laughs) You know, like when you're in that dire of a time when it's like you are literally dying on your couch, it's like, what can I do creatively to satisfy these desires of like I want to make something cool that I'd really love to live in and also I want to tell my story because it's important to me I think it's important to every human to be able to talk about their experience uh, to be able to share that with anybody or even just put it out there and maybe nobody cares about it Uh, but maybe that's all you need for me though I'm, I'm more selfish and like I felt like I needed to talk about my story for therapeutic reasons. Like it's a, it's a relief and it's a, uh, again, it's that kind of respite from, from all the awfulness, the day-to-day nightmare that like a lot of people can experience uh, in many different capacities. And my day-to-day nightmare, like this was a great way to channel that and to be able to talk about that. And I think my favorite thing that came out of the project, out of anything else, um, was that putting my story out there so bluntly and so mm-hmm. honestly about like my health and my issues yeah, and how very I direct. funnel that into like the character in the game and the story of it and like that dude fucking dies at the end, you know? It's yeah. like it is and his his mission is very selfish ultimately cuz like he wants to save himself. Mm-hmm. Like he's desperately trying anything that he can coming to this foreign land like stop the disease that's destroying him mm-hmm. and he fails at the end. And that's a, that's a, like an analog for me where it's like I'm I'm working through this journey and I will more than likely fail at it. You know, yeah. like I don't think there's some grand cure for me. I do what I can to like wow. m- use the tools that I have, uh, the resources that I have to keep pushing forward and live as long as I can because um, who the fuck knows? I mean, any of us can die at any moment, right? But like yeah. certain people have different realities where they're faced with it on a daily basis or more. Um and so trying to express that in a game, uh, especially a game without any words, is really hard. <laughs> it's a challenge. Um, but you find these like very explicit moments to communicate that to the player. And the best you can hope as an artist is that it resonates yeah. on some degree. Uh, and for me, again, going back to that point of like my favorite thing on this project um, that came out of it was it did resonate with people. And... To the point where other people who, you know, in situations similar to mine or different, but just like uh, sometimes much worse than mine, like, uh, you know, I consider myself relatively fortunate even with the stupid bullshit that happens day to day because I can always be worse. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, <laughs> I thank myself that I can still walk. You know, I thank my, I thank the universe that I can still do a lot of the things that I do that I can largely function at a higher level and I'm not as incapacitated because I've had friends who suffer much worse fates than I do mm. on a daily basis and it's horrifying to watch. It's horrifying to watch in yourself and it's just as horrifying to watch in people you care about. And 
having other people reach out, complete strangers throughout the Kickstarter and even still today, like through email or whatever else, and share their stories with a stranger and very personal and raw and, you know, just incredible stories, whether they're, whether they're happy or sad or whatever it, on the end of that, anything in that spectrum, uh, it like, unless you're so detached, like it makes me cry at times. Like yeah. I feel so fortunate and honored that people are able to share such personal, like deeply personal things with somebody like me, um, by virtue of me getting out there and like sharing my own story. That's so fucking inspiring and like heartwarming to the point where it's like <laughs> chokes me up a little bit. Yeah. Um, cause it's hard. It's hard. Things are hard. Life is hard. <laughs> yeah. And when you're chronically ill, that stuff, you know, where things are like killing you every day and knowing that there are other people out there that experience this stuff that don't have the opportunities that I have, um, you know, it, it gives you a certain amount of perspective because facing death all the time gives you a f- certain amount of perspective anyway. Yeah. Uh, but being able to share in that kind of misery and commiserate with other people and just, even if you don't respond with anything but thank you, it's still a, you have shared this piece of your soul with me and I hope it offered something for you. Yeah. Like some outlet on what is obviously a very difficult existence. So that's been like the, kind of the greatest outcome of this is that sharing in in the like ongoing war of existence <laughs> that's incredible yeah <laughs> it's really incredible. sorry i got a little choked no. up it's a, it's a lot yeah no it really it really is um i'm trying to trying to think of the next thing i can say that does justice to that because <laughs> uh, I, I mean that is the most like profound thing that a piece of art can do is is to make that sort of direct connection um yeah is there it whenever i experience that in a game i feel that that's what i'm looking for in a game the most you know when Mm. i when i feel that i'm communicating with the with the person who made it like via via it that's what i that's what i look for is there Yet, you know, it, it's strangely rare sometimes, <laughs> you know, to, to I, I don't that. think it's strange that it's yeah. rare. I, I, you know, like, <laughs> to bring it back on a bit of a lighter note still, um, but in this realm, uh, I definitely look for that connection in games, too. There's obviously games where it's like, I'll play Call of Duty because, like, I want to go shoot people for half an hour because it's fun and it's visceral and it's just like, yeah. it, it hits those endorphins, you know, it hits those nerve centers in, in the brain and all that, sets off those chemical reactions, but... When I really want to dig into an experience, um, you know, I want something that has artistic merit, that has some emotion behind it, and something that the authors or author are trying to communicate to the player. They're yeah. trying to make them feel something and have that emotional response. And I feel like there are there are a few creators that do that, and I, I think a lot of it exists in the indie space just by virtue of it being such a personal yeah. slog through a lot of games making. Uh, on a much smaller scale like that. It's a it's a passion project a lot of times for smaller games and for larger games too, but, you know, that kind of gets muddled and lost in bigger productions. You don't have, like, the author and their hand present typically. Mm-hmm. I think the, the bigger exception is something like Kojima where he is able to, and I have a lot of respect for what he does, even if I don't like Death Stranding as a video game, um, I have a re- lot of respect that he is able to have this vision and see it through 
at such a grand scale and yeah. get you know have a lot of fan love and and feedback and just impact in the industry too like that is amazing that it exists and it's it's uh i think it's something that you know as an audience member and as a game player and every and just a part of this industry like i'm so thankful that people still care and that there are still authors like that out there yeah. people with creative visions that are that have the motivation and drive and sustainability because frankly that's what it takes it's many years of development to create this stuff and you can even see on like Kojima's side, like, you know, he went through Konami and Konami, you hear all the reports yeah. about how brutal that could have been as an existence there as create as a creator, you know, and how much autonomy did he, did he really have during that process? And now you see him Kojima Unleashed is a lot well, of that. And how many folks, uh, you know, my conversation I had with Zach Gage uh, uh, on an earlier episode of this podcast made me uh, think about this, like how much of that respect we have for uh, Kojima is because of him and his unique abilities and how much of it is because he's one of the very few people who is in this position who's managed to get himself in the position where people know his name mm-hmm. and he has a certain amount of creative autonomy right. and how many other incredible artists are there in the industry that don't get that chance that, yeah that don't have that well They're, again like yeah. he's he is very fortunate that's not to say that he hasn't worked hard um, and it's not to say that he doesn't have like really like kind of bold ideas in some way that that, like made him successful but at the same time um you know he's he he has been in a more fortunate position than a lot of people and you see the like slew of creatives that don't make it you know or the ones that you don't even see or don't even know exist because they didn't have the same opportunities and i think to kind of speak to that one thing that i'm happy about in general when the when it comes to the industry is just the tools that we have and the access that we have as creators are so much more like the barriers have been brought down so low to the point now where I think a lot more of those voices are shining through. It's like my voice wouldn't have been able to shine through a few years before that in the same way that it did. Like, but because Kickstarter was there and is the right place in the right time because the tools were readily and freely available in a lot of ways for like the engine that I used and just like the tools for communication and the tools for like building out the pixel art and, you know, every part of the process, like that stuff was not available a decade ago in the same way. Like mm-hmm. you had RPG Maker for a long time and <laughs> RPG Maker was right. great for, for what it did, but it's like you were very constrained in what that was. Yeah. Otherwise you had to build something from scratch and you had to really have a really expensive computer and like nothing saying you had $2,000 in, you know, 1999, which is a whole lot more than $2,000 now. And so the, the barriers to entry, the barriers to creative expression in games have been lowered a whole lot in a way that, like, you're starting to see these extraordinary voices come out. And, like, there's always, like, a negative end to, like, explosions like this. Yeah. Where it's like, ooh, the market's really saturated with a bunch of, like, shovelware or, yep. like, clones or whatever else. But at the same time, like, the market also has a ton of incredible voices coming out, like just burgeoning voices that will have this opportunity now that nobody they did not have a few years ago or 10 years ago or whatever else so you know kojima is one end of the spectrum of like that type of success in that realm of the games industry where it's triple a level basically um granted maybe his budget wasn't quite a call of duty budget or anything like <laughs> right more constrained there's, there's some things you could imagine maybe he wanted to do more in right Death Stranding. But, like he was unleashed creative in a lot of ways but still yeah. constrained by virtue of like i don't think that budget was a crazy budget yeah. crazy for uh, an indie that was just like whoa that's mm-hmm. a lot of fucking money and it is it is a lot of money but still now you have indies creating incredible games 3d games yeah uh, that can blow the socks off of some AAA games, just yeah. even visually, you know, because they have style and vision behind them 
that a lot of AAA stuff doesn't necessarily just by virtue of that. And like, it's that too many cooks in the kitchen kind of thing Mm -hmm. where that creative vision that like authorship, whether it's audio, you know, whether it's visual, whether it's story gets quashed when it goes through so many different filters, Yeah, it just gets crushed up. And then what you get at the end, the result is kind of like a gray slurry sometimes. (laughs) Not to say like, there's a lot of artistic merit in bigger budget games too. I mean, God of War was a really good example of a, of a big budget, really massive success with a lot of artistic value had, and a holistic no, vision. But that's because Corey Barlog was able yeah. to like really push on that. And he's another type like Kojima that like has that authorship and has that capability and is very fortunate in the, the role that he ended up with uh, to be able to channel that stuff. And, and again, granted, like he did a lot of hard work to get there. But, you know, I, games can be at any scale that powerful and emotionally resonant if you have those people helming those games. Well, we got to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Alex Preston. All right, we're back with uh, Alex Preston. So, Hello. Hi there. <laughs> Hi there. Uh, so let's get back to uh, Hyperlight Drifter. You you make the game. It's a success on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. You make it. I would have to say it's a success by any measure. Would like once it is fully released. Would you? Sure. Yeah. Agree? I mean, we've been able to put it out on a multitude of platforms. Yeah. And, you know, we again we were talking about earlier. It's like it's it has resonated with people, um, yeah. and to me, that is success, beyond financial success stuff. Like people care about the game. Yeah. Um, people have had a tattoo of the game logo, which is wild to that, me. That is what that is what I mean. I mean, like, th- there's an interesting question about financial. You know, I mean, you're you're your own company, and you need to keep going, and sure. and you know the brutal economics of the games industry. It's but but a it, lot. It's very expensive to make video games. <laughs> yeah, but it also. It also broke through. People care about it. It's part of the the history of the decade in video games. Yeah. Um, I, I imagine it's had some it's had some influence, um, and more sure. importantly, it's it's found its audience. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that like for you? And and you know how does that? Did did you have a sense that like all right this this changes my life or my art going forward? Um, not at the time. Yeah. And now, like, it's an even, you know, like, I, I think one of the more defining moments, uh, after, like, post-release, where I started to get some more true perspective. Because you're, like, deep down in development. Right. How long did you develop it for? I mean, we were developing it for about nine to ten months before the Kickstarter, mm-hmm. and then after that, it was about two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And then even before that, I was developing, like, sketches and ideas for many months. Yeah. So it's like a four-year-plus development cycle, all things told, like, part-time and concept and whatever else, pre-production, whatever else. Yeah. But, like, true production is two and a half years with And the you're, team. like, down in the mines. You're just down into it. Like, yeah. the, this is your life and your job and your dream. And so you're living it and you're doing it every hour of the day because you're passionate about it. And I think that's true for a lot of creative game makers. Like they are passionate about it and they will break themselves to make this thing. <laughs> um, and it, again, at all ends of the spectrum of, of video games making, whether it's a single person in their garage or, you know, somebody in AAA. And 
which can lead to a lot of abuses, self and otherwise. Yeah, uh, which is very unfortunate and something that needs to. Oh, we're also change. we're also passionate here is code for no one ever goes home. Right, <laughs> you need to work. 16 hours today yeah. and tomorrow and for the rest of nine months. Because you love it, don't you? You love it. You don't even want to be paid because you love video games, don't you? And if you? you don't love it, somebody else will love it more. The same thing happens in comedy, which is why I'm... Dur- I don't work in video games, but yeah. it's like... I'd oh, imagine yeah. it happens in plenty of industries. Yeah. Like, people have passion for this entertainment because they grew up with it, and so they get exploited. Yeah. Um. Anyway, that's a different subject, but an important one. Um. You don't really pay attention to or try not to pay as much attention to what's going on in the outside world uh, or what is what could be um, after release because you're so caught up in what's in the moment of like what is happening now because there's so much work to do on a video game. You know, like we talked about the different subjects and like in particular the interactivity is just such a hard thing to nail down with like the plethora of interactions that happen in any given moment for a video game yeah. like is the character going to go or is the player going to choose to go right left you know north or south on this um and even that can be just like many many decisions that need to be accounted for and so you're just you're deep in it you have a team that you're working with and there's a lot of creative process happening there day after day and just a ton of stress and even when the game releases like you you still have a lot of build-up uh like a lot of just tension there of like is this game is it doing what it needs to do? And you get blinders in some ways. Like, how is this game good still? I don't even yeah. know. Like, is this level I'm playing any good? I've been playing it for 100 hours now. I've been, like, building this level for weeks, for months. And, like, I can't even fucking tell at a certain point. Yeah. Which is why playtesting is vital. Um, but even still, even when you're in the moment, like, re- pressing the, the damn button in Steam to release this video game... Like there's a brief celebration. They're like, we did it, and then it's like, oh fuck, now we got to fix bugs. Now we got to do. <laughs> now we got to do all the maintenance. Now we have to do community engagement in a way that we didn't before because we have yeah. a wild live game out there. And then come the ports, and then come all these other promises that we have to deliver on, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not done. The work is not done, and even still, the work is not done. Like we released an iOS version not that long ago. Yeah. That was some tail work that we had to do. Granted, it really helped that we had a port house to, to do that for us largely, but there was work involved. There's work where, for you to do, yeah. Yeah, there's there's plenty of work there for me to do. So I think ultimately. It takes more extraordinary events sometimes to get perspective yeah. and to understand like the true weight of what you've put out there is. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really get that until um, so the next year at GDC, um, where because we released in '16, uh, which is now a long time ago. Yeah, uh, we released in like March of 2016 on PC, and then you know we built out a bunch of different things on different platforms, but. You know, the next GDC um, for 17 in, uh, I think it was in March, because that's usually when it is, we were at the award show, um, and we got nominated for a few categories, which was awesome, Mm. and then we won two awards in it, which was amazing, and I didn't expect to win anything, not because I think the stuff that we made is bad. I mean, I think the stuff we made is great. I'm so extremely proud of the team and everything that we put together and like it's an extraordinary amount of labor and talent that was poured into that um so it's very deserving because of what everybody did but you know still it's not not something i'm like dreaming about awards or (laughs) dreaming about some like crazy recognition like that but when we won the award like the first award it's like oh wow this is super cool like thank you so much you know this is amazing blah 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 but I, i didn't really know i didn't prepare anything i wasn't really ready for it but it's like cool 
And then we won the second award, and at that point, I was like, fuck, you know, this is wild <laughs> that we even won one, let yeah. alone two, and that people cared about it enough. And, you know, like, I almost cried on the stage there, and I'd have, like, Teddy go take over and be like, yeah. can you talk? Because, like, this is harder for me to talk now because I'm standing up here on the stage in, a, in front of a bunch of my peers, and there's an appreciation for the product that we put out for, the like, the creative, like, soul that is out, like, this child that we made, essentially. Like there's, there is uh, recognition and love for it and like an emotional attachment that some people have for it that, you know, resonates a whole lot. And like, yeah, that was the first time I really had a moment to step back and understand the full scope of what we had done and what we had reached there and achieved. And when it's so personal, when the work itself is very much when, when it's even autobiographical to to an extent to like have that be recognized must yeah. be incredibly intense it is and and you know i just it was <laughs> sometimes it's hard to reconcile with those emotions in the moment yeah uh, and even afterwards like you're still like breaking it down and like really digesting the whole process because you've spent so long down in the in the video game minds just chiseling away trying to make this thing that sure you can occasionally step back and think wouldn't it be great if we won an award or something but, like didn't really even that didn't really cross our minds as a creative cruise like is it wouldn't it be great if we finished this video game? It's like the thing that you're thinking most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Like, how the fuck do we finish this thing? Yeah, I'd like to take a break. I'd like to rest. I need yeah. a vacation, yeah. but I can't. I just need to make this thing. Yeah. Because it's just, it's burning in my soul to, like, get out there. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, like, actually having some of that downtime, actually being able to spend some time with friends and then get that perspective and then going up on stage and, like, really understanding, like, oh, oh, okay, this is what we did. It just it took a lot, and you know I was able to live in that moment for a bit and 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 uh, get my own little brain vacation of like wow cool <laughs> this is really this is nice <laughs> we did this thing together and it's really fucking cool and I'm I couldn't be happier that people you know resonated with it in this way um, so yeah I, I, and then you go right back to it. Yeah, <laughs> and then it's like you live in that moment for a bit, however that moment la lasts, or like the residuals of it and everything. And then it's like, cool, now we got to make the next, the next thing, or we got to port these things. We're gonna go back tomorrow and like fix bugs. I want to ask you about the next thing, but I also want to know: uh, Do you ever have the feeling of dissatisfaction with it? I feel that way often with my own work, where someone's like, "Ah, oh, this is great," and I'm like, all I'm thinking about is that one part that I'm like, that that one thing still doesn't work. And it's like burning a hole in my brain a little bit. That's like a common thing that creative folks have with their with their work where, you know, especially ones who are who are very exacting as I'm mm. as I'm sure you are. Do you have anything lingering like that? Oh fuck yeah. I hate all my work. <laughs> you know, until I don't. But even then I'm like, oh fuck this. I guess it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's I think a lot of artists punish themselves. I think a lot of creative people punish yeah. themselves and are are their own worst critics for better and for worse. And some a bit more perspective I've had on that because even in art school, you know, it's like I fucking hate all my work. I threw it all away, blah, blah, blah. I go through the critiques. Like there's some, I, on one end I recognize like, oh, there's some skill and talent there and I appreciate it, but also like I'm sick of looking at my work. Fuck it, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think a lot of that just, you get to adjust and you get to, uh, I want to say, <laughs> you get to more positively and, 
and healthily adjust at certain mm-hmm. points if you are able to get that perspective. Like, maybe all the work isn't bad. Maybe, you know, like, it's it's good to be a perfectionist. It's good to be exacting in, in, in ways that, like, make this work good. Um, and without it, it wouldn't be as good. Um, but still, like, you can give yourself a break sometimes. <laughs> and maybe you don't have to be as harsh about it. Yeah. Like, you can still have that exacting perfectionism without being a jerk to yourself without mm-hmm. like, you know, giving yourself 40 mental lashes about it. <laughs> you know, you don't have to punish so much in order to still get good work out because like we suffer enough as people that exist, you know? Yeah. So even that can be, be enough. That mental anguish and torment doesn't have to be as awful. That's why it's so good to put the thing out. You know, you were saying playing a game and uh, when you're like, is this still fun? Is this game fun? Yeah. And I've had the experience so many times of like writing a joke and being like, this isn't funny. I just need <laughs> a joke here. Fine. And yeah. then when people laugh at it i'm like oh great you oh okay yeah. oh all right oh. i get ah oh, what a nice relief you have to let it you have to let that feeling in yeah. from everybody else and and let it at least a little bit quiet your part Absolutely. of you saying you guys don't realize that about this shit you don't realize it's shitty in this way right okay then right, i guess you don't you see know. you don't see how fucking bad this level is what do you <laughs> what i gotta wreck it i gotta rip it all out and do it over <laughs> but then it turns out like oh it's somebody's favorite level yeah. it's like great okay so yeah that that engagement with the audience helps a lot. Yeah. You know, having, for games in particular, like having a play tester come where now this next project, Solar Ash, like we've been working on for yeah, a, few, a few years now. And like, this is a game where we're like extremely heads down. Very little that we talk about uh, openly right now just because there's, you know, it's a very grand experiment in a lot of ways. Like mm-hmm. we're doing some things that games don't, try to do because they're fucking stupid because <laughs> they're because they're hard like incredibly hard to do and you but you can't say what they are i yeah you know we're i mean in I'm the not... teaser for example it's like we have clouds that you're surfing on and there's a lot of tech that goes into that mm-hmm. um and we'll like we're gonna do these dev logs uh soon because with hyperlight i also did a thing with the kickstarter mm. where every month i'd update and do like gifs and everything else and sometimes videos and I'd just talk about the state of development and we still got a bit of a tail for solar, and so I want to keep doing that kind of style or resurrect that style. Where it's like, cool, every month we're talking to people on the team about how we make this video game without revealing too much about the actual game itself, but still tantalizing. There's a ton to talk about, technical on the art side. And, for example, the first one that I really want to do that I'm preparing for is, like, how do you make a character in 3D? And mm. how does that translate from concept to the model, to being rigged, to then being put into game. Mm. And then how does that change in game as you're playing with the animations and you're playing with gameplay and mechanics and how to, like, the full evolution of, like, where we got from point A in my sketchbook for this this main character to where it is right now today in a game that's, you know, closer to being released than it is, you know, starting. Um, And so there's a fascinating process there that I think a lot more people should be aware of. And I'm not saying I'm some great arbiter of this stuff. It's just like, I want to do this. I think more developers should do this stuff. And there are are good developers out there that are sharing and talking about process, which is amazing because it all influences me a lot. You know, like John Blow's game, The Witness, they had a lot of really good dev vlogs um, that they would talk about the tech behind. uh, And I fucking love those because it's just, it's fascinating. Even if I am not a tech artist and I don't understand, like, why use this rendering method here, breaking it down in terms that I can understand and to some extent and that not not like I could ever do that is still just like, wow, that's super cool that you're able to achieve this and these are all the different problems that you had to solve. Yeah. It's just incredible incredible puzzle solving happening all over the place. And to watch that like 
first attempt, the end result, and how beautiful that end result can be, whether it's a mathematical problem that you're solving, like an equation, or just literally something visual and beautiful in that way, it's, it's again, that process that endlessly fascinates me. It's the stuff that I want to share more and more of yeah. so that people are aware of how hard it is to make games. Because I think part of... Part of what discourages a lot of game developers and is sad in the industry is the amount of like vitriol that people have, oh, yeah. like players have for developers. You know, even people that look like they don't do this thing, but you've singled them out and now you've wrecked their lives and yeah. sent them death threats and all this stuff because of X thing that you're mad about when maybe they had nothing to do with that part of the process. <laughs> but you found them on a list of you're part of this game, so you must be. Or like you have this title, so you must be like destroying yeah. this part that I love or whatever else. Or just trying to find blame and, and trying to point hate towards people that really don't deserve any of it. Yeah, You know, nine times, 99.9% of the time, the people that you're targeting for for these problems and mistakes and whatever else, it's like, it's it's not accurate. Yeah. It's you, like, these are people that are passionate about making this stuff because most people that I've found in games are passionate about making good video games. Yeah. There are very few people that I've ever encountered that just are in it to like make money yeah. or fuck people over. Like, Everyone cares about the player to some extent. Everyone cares about the work that they're pouring in them, their some, lives that they're Sometimes the people it. writing the checks don't care about the players or the people sure. receiving the checks. Of course. There's you plenty know. of like middle management or upper yeah. management or publishing entities and whatever else that 100% don't give a fuck. But blame them or lash out of them or don't buy the thing. But it's complicated. And when you're talking about like easy access on Twitter or Facebook or any social media now. Yeah. Um, and the like, again, pinpointed harassment that can happen there for creative folks, for people in the industry, like just getting slammed for this stuff. It's, mm -hmm. it's just, it's discouraging. And yeah. these are people that are already pouring their heart and souls into it, even if it's not the greatest game, because they fucking love video games, because most people in video games fucking love it and want to <laughs> do it, who are actually making the video games. Yes. You know, it, like it's it's the Blizzard gets a lot of hate these days, yeah. Um, and sometimes rightfully so for some of the more corporate decisions they make, mm -hmm. but oftentimes never in the amount and way they get it though, mm -hmm. because even at BlizzCon last time, where because uh, I have friends that work at Blizzard, and yeah. even at BlizzCon last time, where like the whole Diablo thing happened, where like yeah. oh they didn't reveal Diablo four, instead they revealed this phone game that people mm -hmm. are like this isn't the game that I wanted, and that's a fair <laughs> reaction to be like ooh I don't care about a phone game, I'd much rather actually have the other one. You kind of like you know, pulled the wool over or just like pulled the tablecloth yeah. from under whatever metaphor works there that those two didn't at all. Um, but people got so up in arms and so rude and so shitty about it to people on that team that had nothing to do with that presentation. Yeah. Like threats of violence. And didn't make that decision. And that may, had nothing to do with making that decision. And it's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Are you that fucking upset that you're channeling your anger at very innocent folks, people that love this product that they're trying to create, this like this thing that they're pouring themselves into? Like that's so discouraging and horrifying yeah. to the point where I understand why a lot of people in the industry are afraid to even go back on social media and vent these things. Yeah. You know, like it's just it's horrifying. It's like that writer also who is uh what over at um ArenaNet and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, like she was just venting about 
creative process, about writing narrative for an MMO, which is fucking difficult. Writing narrative, yeah. period, is difficult. Writing narrative for a nonlinear format is really difficult. Yeah. Writing narrative for a nonlinear format that's an MMO that has like endless content, no end in sight, is fucking horrifying. That's like, that's a huge challenge. And I can't imagine the amounts of like conversations that they have had over there just about how to make that good. And the amount of passion and dedication that you have to work on that for years and pour your heart and soul into figuring out these huge challenges. And then to have people kind of toss it in your face and like, you know, you have like a curt reaction to that. Like, don't tell me how to do this. I've been doing it for a long time. Like it's, you know, whatever the language used there, the reaction and response to that was so unfair. Yeah. Was so unfair. And to be like, you know, use a, use a term that is very overused, like tossed under the bus by your company for yeah. that. Like, and then the person that stands up for you gets tossed under the bus. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, especially way, when... to, way to not protect the people that work for you, that create your games for you. How fucked up. Especially when the, the company is the party that's responsible for, you know, like, the, right. if, if people are justifiably angry at anything, it's the institution, yes. right? And sure. so I think it's justifiably angry at Blizzard for, uh, you know, violating the value of the play in, in the with the player who shouted out "Free Hong Kong," right? Sure, um, absolutely. Like that's a policy decision. It's a made corporate by, decision yeah. made by the suits. And, you, and know? you can say this is contrary to our values as players, right. as users of the internet. Like and Jeff we, Kaplan isn't making that decision, yeah. and people know? knew people knew that about that, right? But like. So if, you know, folks are mad at ArenaNet because I'm a, I'm a customer and this, you know, and this uh, company isn't like right. treating us with the respect we deserve. Well, that's f but that's not about the person. I it is. So for the company to throw the person under the bus. Right. It's like that's again, that's management and that's, you know, a team lead getting getting tossed under because of internal politics on this stuff. Yeah. And because, you know, like I don't know exactly what happened, but the, on the face of it, what it looks like is. This person vented about something, responded to a part of the community. The company or the community didn't like that response, whether justified or not, lashed out in a way that is not justified. Mm -hmm. And then in like with like volumes of just vitriol thrown at that. And then the company did what it did and did not protect or, you know, yeah. serve their employee, the person that they've promise to carry through on this project promise to like do that part of yeah you know like that is their responsibility it's your employee it's the person working for you it's the person putting their creative energy yeah. in the product that they love and care about and the least you can do is help them survive in this industry and flourish in this industry and be protected from things like that where it's invading their their private lives and, and making them and invading and like being harassed in that way it's like that is part of the industry that is just you know it's not it's not a good part like yeah. it's it's just it needs to stop because it's it doesn't help anything if people who are angry on the player base side think that this anger and this like projection is going to do anything positively mm -hmm. beyond get people fired which maybe they think is positive I can promise you it's not usually. Yeah. I can promise you that that hate that you're throwing out, the only thing it's serving is yourself. Well, that's how you get the uh last Star Wars movie that we got. You know what I mean? It it right. like creates a it creates this yeah. like weirdly toxic relationship where everyone's frightened and everyone's angry. Right. And and it it actually ties back to something interesting uh, the personal expression angle, right? Because um there's a there's a conflict between the fact that these products are art 
right? Yeah. Um, and let's include wider media that has this sort of relationship, like Star Wars or like, um, you know, uh, uh, there's been, for instance, cartoons like I think of Steven Universe as something mm-hmm. that's had a, a weird relationship with the fans in some cases. Um, sure. And, you know, there's a degree to which, okay, we're customers, in the case of Star Wars, or like a really big video game like Blizzard, mm-hmm. right, of a giant organization. And that's something that, like, maybe we could be angry at. Sure. Uh, because, hey, it's asking for our money and it's not giving us the value that we expect, et cetera. Of course. Um, but on the other hand, these are also art products that are made by artists. And yes. if an artist make something that you don't like mm-hmm. like if they make a if you don't like the ending right. <laughs> right because it didn't wrap up the way that you wanted like mass effect 3 like mass effect 3 or like you know something or say say uh i, I don't know a, 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 even a smaller game like something that you might be making right mm-hmm. where you're like hey if if someone has a problem with the ending of of hyperlight drifter mm-hmm. right it'd be odd for them to say well, that's not the ending I paid for, and I demand you change it, and I'm going to go tweet at you until you change it, because you could justifiably say, well, no, this is I'm telling my own fucking story here. But and, you, you, people do that with games yeah. and movies and just media now in general. Like, and that's a, that's a weird conflict. It's it's a weird conflict. Like, I think it's complicated also. And and the big reason why I talk about like exposing more of how game, like process and why it's important is I think this is a big part of it for me too. Yeah. Like we've seen how toxic things can be online for years now. Um, game side, film side, any any fandom side. Fandom is a double-edged sword where it's like it can be amazing. It can uplift a, you know, like a creative product in a way that would not be possible. You know, it can resurrect things mm-hmm. in ways that like whether it's Futurama or many other properties like that or even games where it's like Shenmue's back you know like that guy like it can make the it can make them better like it can can elevate them yeah Yeah. like that like I I love that stuff and and I'm a fan of a lot of things too but the other edge of that is like when people take so much ownership and so much offense to things and they lash out at the people that are least responsible for the things that you hate or even lash out to the people that are responsible for the things you hate that lashing out and that anger and that projection of that anger is inappropriate in many ways yeah. because it's so harsh and so brutal. And this person wasn't like more often than not, this person isn't thinking in such a uh, black and white, like, oh, I'm going to fuck this over or I'm going to do this to it. Or like, it's not an, it's not a sinister thing as a lot of the times it's been made right. out to be. And the reaction to things is oftentimes orders of magnitude, uh, more uh, awful than any any kind of initial problem merits when it comes to these artistic ventures. Like, you know, uh, Rain Johnson and all that stuff with Star Wars uh, and yeah. the, in that episode of Seven, right? Seven and Seven? I think so. Um, Eight? You know, like, you can you can talk about the, the merits of the film. You can talk about how you did or did not like it. But then just the amount of, like, hate and vitriol particular people got that just were undeserving of that. Yeah. And it's like, dude, it's a, it's a, it's a movie. It's an important <laughs> movie to you, and we get yeah. that. But also, like these, pe- these are people. Like at the end of the day, the people that you're lashing out at, that you're sending hate to, that you're threatening in different ways, these are human beings that have feelings, that care, that are doing these projects most of the time for the love of it. They're, again, yeah. in the games industry in particular, 
There are so many people here that are here just for the passion of making games. Yell at the suits all you want. Yell at the Activisions and the EAs and whatever else. Of, yeah. Like the horrible decisions that are made from publishers or all across the globe about things or like Ketchup who steals content from indie devs and makes millions of dollars off of it. There's plenty of hate to go around in the right spaces and voting with your dollars and making people aware online and like getting these campaigns to be like, fuck this place. It's terrible. Those are good ways to vent those things. But directing that hate at creators for like business decisions or even creators for decisions that you didn't necessarily agree with, like just (laughs) if you must talk to these people have some understanding that they are human beings and have emotions and that they have love for the thing that they're involved in. Even if you disagree creatively on it, have some fucking respect when you talk to and engage with these people because know that more than likely they have poured a lot of themselves into this, whether you like the result or not. Yeah. Uh, Before we go, I just want to ask... let me just say I agree. <laughs> I think it's clear <laughs> for the conversation. Um, but uh, uh, I, I just want to know when you're looking at your next project, mm-hmm. um, having accomplished so much with Hyperlight Drifter, like in terms of, you know, artistically, in terms of getting that story out there and, and communicating with those folks, what are you looking to do next? Like what what is your, in terms of your own growth as an artist, you don't need to spoil. I'm asking you for game secrets. I'm asking you, like, what is your relationship? All the game secrets. <laughs> what is your relationship to the next thing that you're making? What are you trying to do for yourself? I, I don't think I can ever make something that's not personal. Mm-hmm. So next project and even the project after that, they're personal things that I, I, like, have a passion for that I, you know, have a creative vision for that I. And pushing hard on, like, this is the hardest thing that I've done. You know, Hyperlight was really hard. This is even harder for yeah. a lot of reasons because it's bigger. It's a bigger team. It's it's bigger production. It's 3D, and there's a lot of wild stuff that we're doing in it. And so for Solar Ash, you know, like, it's, it's very different in many ways, um, but also very similar in a lot of ways just by virtue of the creative process. You know, I'm still figuring out how to make games. I don't think you ever stop figuring out how to make the things you're making. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you feel that way with like process is different every time. Yeah. You can learn lessons, you can have better tools, you can adapt more quickly in certain cases, but oftentimes you're kind of like relearning the process each and every time. Um, you know, even month to month sometimes it's like, ah, we're, <laughs> we gotta, you know, it's just, it's, you hone in on things and you're able to iterate and polish and that's great. But there's always going to be challenges, whether they're things that you have to slog through or challenges that you get to like feel good about overcoming. Um, and w- with solar in particular, there's been so many heavy challenges that are very rewarding to eventually try and solve for. Um, but uh, I don't know. I'm 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 in that mode right now, or I'm in the thick of it. And I know we're making something cool, and we're making something that I'm proud of. Uh, and that I'm excited about every day. There was definitely a point where I wasn't excited about it because I was just tired and like freaked out and like, <laughs> fuck, what are we doing? You know, right. like we're spending all this money on this thing. I don't even know if it's going to be good or bad or whatever else. I don't even know if it can work because it's it's uh, it's a little less traditional uh, in ways. And so, but now I'm at the point where it's like, yeah, we're 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 uh, <laughs> we're in a really good spot, mm-hmm. a really fortunate spot, and I'm. Super excited about the stuff that we're making every day, and 
it is still a very personal project, even if it's on a bigger scale. And we have text, and I can write, and that's really nice, too. Mm. <laughs> you couldn't do that before. Yeah. Not that I didn't write for Hyperlight, but, like, there's a lot of backstory and world building and, like, Im- yeah. implied uh, events happening and implied just, you know, different things throughout the course of that game. But this is more explicit and can bear more of these, like, particular parts of my oddities and quirks and, uh, you know, like, everybody's oddities and quirks that are expressing things in this video game. I can't wait to play it. Thank you yeah. so much. And it's also very helpful to have a narrative designer in Zoe <laughs> like participating on this to like do all that writing too because like there's a bunch of writing that needs to happen for yeah. a game like this where it's more narratively driven. Well, I can't wait to play it. Thank you so much for coming to to tell us about your work, man. I'm such a fan. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. It's been fun to chat. Well, thank you once again to Alex Preston for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Uh, And that is it for us this season on Humans Who Make Games. If you're wondering what's going to happen in the future, I would love to keep doing this show. I've been very busy with other projects, uh, with television, other podcasts, uh, live tours. So it's been a little bit hard to find time to do this show, especially because uh, this show is a true labor of love. But uh, we want to get some more interviews up and running, and uh, I will let you know on Twitter or on this feed what our next move is for humans who make games. Um, until then, you can follow me on social media. Uh, you can follow me uh, at twitch.tv slash adamconover if you want to watch me play some video games. Um, I want to thank our producer, Aristotle Acevedo, for helping me make this show. I want to thank my friend Brian Baldiger, who brought me in at Starburns uh, to help me uh, develop this show. And uh, thanks so much for listening, and hopefully we'll see you one day again very soon on Humans Who Make Games. Starbands Avenue, a podcast network.